0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Macabre for Mortals. As you can hopefully hear, I am feeling a lot better this week and I finally got my voice back properly. And I do almost feel back to normal, still a little bit under the effects of a virus or a chest infection, one of the two, the doctors aren't sure. So this week I'm gonna be concluding my series on post-traumatic stress disorder. And this week I was going to focus mainly on um, studies about victims suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder under different circumstances, and in some ways how it can affect people's lives. Just a reminder as well that June is post-traumatic stress disorders focus month. I know myself, I'll be making myself more aware of the community and also donating to the causes in order to help those people who are suffering. I hope this series will have given you the insight into the disorder and might give you some ideas or tools to be able to help yourself if you're suffering or those you love or your community as well. So as I said, let's just get started and finish the third final part. I first wanted to focus on victims of natural disasters and how they deal with post-traumatic stress disorder. Natural disasters can come about in so many different ways. I know living here in Australia, we can experience bushfires and floods, which can be occurring at the same time at different parts of the country. Whether it be tsunamis, cyclones, or even a really bad storm, which can cause human or animals habitats to be destroyed. These are all natural disasters. I don't know how I would cope if I was in this situation. Do you know how you would? More than 10% of individuals are likely to be exposed to some form of disaster during their lives. Psychosocial outcomes can be divided into short-term and longer-term effects and also seem to differ between natural and technological disasters. The effects of natural disasters in general are no longer detectable after two years, whereas the effects of technological disasters are more prolonged. As with other forms of post-traumatic stress disorder, important modifying factors include the specific nature of the traumatic exposure, the individual's characteristics and the recovery environment. Disasters may be unique in the centrality of the community's role in planning for and warning of a disaster as well as the community's immediate and short and long-term interventions. In 1987, Madaskira and O'Brien released a paper on acute post-traumatic stress disorder in victims of natural disasters in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease. They surveyed the mental health status of 116 disaster victims aged 18 to 89 years five months after a tornado devastated a rural community. And they used the Hopkins symptom checklist, expanded to include most of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders, the DSM-3 at the time, and used this criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. 69 of subjects meant met the criteria for acute post-traumatic stress disorder, 19 of whom had a severe form. Although an inadequate degree of social support was more often noted in the victims with severe post-traumatic stress disorder, other demographic factors and a degree of injury or property damage did not appear to be related to the presence of post-traumatic stress disorder. Severity or presence of PTSD were supported by high scores on all their HSCL subscale factors. And the findings from this study suggest that high incidence of acute PTSD in victims of natural disasters and the potential value of their H L S C L in screening for post-traumatic stress disorder in pop- large populations. I then wanted to see whether there was anything that looked a little bit further and the next paper that I found was published in 1992 by McFarlane and Papaya which looked at multiple diagnoses in post-traumatic stress disorder in victims of natural disaster. This was also published in the same Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease. In this study, They examined the onset of post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, and affect disorder in a population of volunteer firefighters who were victims of a natural disaster. They looked 42 months after the disaster, and it actually showed that 135 firemen were at high risk for PTSD based on general health questionnaire results and 40 firemen who were not at risk were interviewed. The disaster was associated with the rise in the prevalence of psychiatric disorder, PTSD. And PTSD was the most common disorder and major depression the next most common. 77% of the subjects who developed PTSD also developed another disorder. Whenever we think of a natural disaster, we tend to think of the victims of people losing their homes or actually being involved. But I thought this was a really good look at the view of a firefighter, of someone who had to go in and rescue. I know they are trained, obviously, to be able to go into situations like this, but I don't think any sort of training can prepare you for the mental stress and the mental load that you could actually be faced with. With. And I think this also harkens back to how people cope in the armed forces and how we just expect them to be able to function normally because this is their job. But I don't think anybody can prepare for that. We can have some resilience to some things, but I think exposure to things is, is always going to cause some sort of disorder because you're exposed to a high stress environment and I don't think you can be trained for every single situation that you're going to come up against and I think sometimes some situations are just so unique and so triggering that it can actually trigger those post-traumatic stress disorder. Next I wanted to focus on post-traumatic stress disorder in rape victims. Obviously, this is a huge trigger warning for anybody who has um, experienced any sort of rape or sexual assault, and I just want to give you that trigger warning before I actually go into a few of these details. So, I actually looked at a study that was first published in 1992 by Barbara Oswey Rothenblum, Edna Foer, David Riggs, Tamara Murdoch, and William Walsh. This was the prospective examination of post-traumatic stress disorder in rape victims. They wanted to look in this study at post-traumatic stress disorder and related psychopathology. And they examined 95 female rape victims beginning soon after their assault. They put here that the mean amount of time that they first were examined was about 12 days. The subjects were assessed weekly for 12 weeks. And 94% of women met symptomatic criteria for PTSD at assessment one decreasing to 65% at assessment 4, so that was about 35 days post-assault, and 47% at assessment 12, about 94 days after their assault. PTSD and related psychopathology decreased sharply between assessments 1 and 4 for all women. Women whose PTSD persisted throughout the three month study did not show improvement after the fourth assessment. And women who did not meet the criteria for PTSD three months post-assault showed steadily improvement over time. This pattern was evidenced even after initial PTSD severity was statistically controlled. Moreover, PTSD status at three months post-assault could be predicted with a high degree of accuracy by two brief self-report measures administered at the first assessment. The implications of the present findings and directions for the future research are discussed in this paper. I thought this one was really unique as it actually addressed women for three months after an assault. And I still, I think that's still a very short amount of time. I don't think that we can accurately say whether someone's going to have post traumatic stress disorder that quickly. I think sometimes a lot of people have some really good coping methods. And then later on, say in 12 months time, something could just set them off and trigger the post traumatic stress disorder. I think this study was good at assessing them quite regularly, but I think this would have to be done over a longer time, but it was really good to see how people dropped, did drop. But I think also with this study, it didn't actually mention how severe, I would hate to go into this, but how severe the assault was and maybe a different form of rape or different form of assault, whether it came about from someone that you knew or someone that you didn't know, whether that would affect the post-traumatic stress disorder as well. I also wanted to see how people's lives can be overall affected by post-traumatic stress disorder As we know the triggering things that can obviously affect someone's life on a day-to-day basis, but I wanted to see whether it actually, um, affected their functionality of things that are things that we don't think about it, like automated things that we do. So I actually found a study that was published in 1998. And it was published by Jenkins et al. And it was learning a memory in rape victims with post-traumatic stress disorder. I thought this was a really good study. So I am going to go into this one in detail. And I will post a link in the show notes below. For you to be able to read through this yourself. Because sometimes I find... Hearing things helps me get a gist of it, but reading it myself really can help me get a grasp with everything that's going on. Studies have shown memory deficits among combat veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. However, high rates of comorbid conditions, including alcoholism, make it difficult to definitely associate these findings with the post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis. In Jenkins' study, the authors examined memory functioning among rape survivors without alcoholism or substance abuse, but with post-traumatic stress disorder. Impaired memory for elements of the traumatic experience is a core feature of post-traumatic stress disorder and a clinical complaints of memory impairment for non-trauma related stimuli are common. Several studies have documented generalized memory impairment among patients with compact related PTSD. The underlying mechanism is unknown, but some investigators have implicated stress induced damage to the limbic temporal lobe structures. However, the etiologic role of stress in learning and memory impairments is clouded by high rates of comorbid psychiatric illness and substance abuse. Ultimately, the relationship between post-traumatic stress disorder and memory functioning may be best understood by studying alternative patient groups with fewer comorbid disorders. In this particular study, they examined the hypothesis that patients with rape-related post-traumatic stress disorder would demonstrate memory impairments similar to those of patients with combat-related post-traumatic stress disorder. Three groups of subjects participated in this study. Treatment seeking rape survivors from a rape crisis centre, either with post-traumatic stress disorder or without post-traumatic stress disorder and non-traumatized comparison subjects. After a complete description of the study to the subjects, written and informed consent was obtained. A diagnosis of current PTSD was made if the symptoms met the diagnosis criteria of the structured clinical interview for the DSM-3, and the subject received a score higher than 107 on the modified version of the Mississippi scale for combat-related PTSD. The comparison subjects were matched to the PTSD positive patients on age, education, handedness, and gender on a case by case basis. The exclusion criteria was a history of hand injuries, blackouts, seizures, hallucinations, delusions, use of antipsychotic or stimulant drugs, or pre-rate treatment for a psychiatric illness or substance abuse. Mobid. Core Morbid Anxiety Disorders, Depression and Substance Abuse were assessed with the SCID, Beck Depression Inventory and Modified Michigan Alcoholism Screening Test, respectively. The California Verbal Learning Test was used to quantify immediate free recall over five trials, slope learning of the curve, short delay and long delay, recall, Number of words discriminated from distractors, uh, semantic, and serial. Clustering measures of encoding strategy. The average subject was 27.7 years old and had 14.9 years of education, and there was no significant between-group differences. All but one of the sexually assaulted subjects were female. The average time since assault was 6.2 years. The post-traumatic stress disorder positive group reported more depressive symptoms than the other two groups. And over one half of the PTSD positive group, 53%, had a moderate or severe levels of depression compared to about 6% of the PTSD negative group and 0% of the non-traumatized subjects. No between group differences was noted in the scores of the Modified Mississippi test. The post-traumatic stress disorder positive and the post-traumatic stress disorder negative groups did not differ in the rates of anxiety disorders. Thus the current design controlled for the comorbid anxiety disorder including the comparison group with equivalent rates and for alcohol, alcohol use. The groups did differ with level of depressive symptoms, which was addressed statistically. On the Californian verbal learning test indices, the performance of the PTSD positive group was worse than all of the other two groups on numbers of words learned and the short delay free recall. While these differences did not attain the adjusted alpha level of statistical significance, they do represent a clear trend towards worse performance by the PTSD positive individuals on these measures of short-term memory. This interpretation is consistent with all the significant impairments of the PTSD positive groups in long delay recall. Post-hoc analysis indicated that the PTSD-positive subjects record fewer list items than did the PTSD-negative and the comparison groups. Memory disruption in combat veterans with PTSD is difficult to interpret owing to the high rates of other psychiatric disorders and substance abuse. This study just discussed, demonstrated that PTSD positive subjects without comorbid alcohol abuse have impaired free recall. And this is similar to the results for the veteran groups. Compared to normative standards for age and education, one third of the PTSD positive group fell at at least two standard deviations below the mean for the delayed recall. Fewer than the 5% of the members of the other two groups were this impaired. Overall, the PTSD positive group scored in the mild to moderately impaired range when compared to the normative standards. It isn't clear whether poor memory for personally irrelevant information is related to the loss of memory for elements of traumatic experience. And this should be the issue, should be the focus of future studies. Another issue is whether memory impairment is secondary to attentional impairment. Poor immediate free recourse suggests uh, attentional deficits, which have been documented in combat references. Further study of the relationship between attentional and memory functioning in groups with rape related PTSD and with combat related PTSD is needed. I thought this was a really, really good study. I've just tried to give you the briefest of overall looks at it. And even though it does say that its results are not very statistically significant, I think it's because the amount of participants that they actually had, the groups are really small. So they only had 16 in each group. And that's a very small sample size to be able to draw a statistical analysis from. But I think the fact that they did see some difference between the PTSD positive and the other two groups so the control group and the PTSD negative does show that there is some impairment on learning and memory. And I do believe that this is something that victims can feel. A lot of their life has been taken over and has been stolen by the person who has been the perpetrator. And I think maybe that's something that could be looked at in future. And I think it's really important to be able to see this and maybe this is something that can be applied to children who have been subjected to prolonged domestic violence and sexual assault, that this is why that the learning on the memory isn't as good because of this issue. The next study I wanted to focus on um, was done by Johnson in 2007. It was published in the health and quality of life outcomes journal. And it was called the predictive value of post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms for quality of life, a longitudinal study of physically injured victims of non-domestic violence. Little is known about the longitudinal associations between post-traumatic stress disorder and quality of life after exposure to violence. The aim of this study was to examine the quality of life and the predictive value of post-traumatic stress disorder for quality of life in victims of non-domestic violence over a period of 12 months. The human response to interpersonal violence is one of the most important public health problems in the world. Exposure to a terrifying event such as violence may confront an individual with such horror and threat to a degree that unusual psychological defense is incapable of coping with the impact. The consequences may be temporal or permanent and altering the capacity to cope changed concept of self and reduced quality of life. Research does show that anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder is a common problem following violence and that other emotional problems may be secondary to post-traumatic stress disorder. Knowledge about people's experience of reactions following exposure to violence, including the impact of the quality of life. Is needed to improve the understanding of these complex psychological processes. Publications on the subject of quality of life in psychiatric research are of later date than those somatic medicine. Quality of life has been de- defined in a number of ways, such as symptom status, functional health, general health perceptions, general life satisfaction, well-being, and overall quality of life. Terms such as health-related quality of life, function status, subjective health status, and overall quality of life are used interchangeably to express different aspects of the term of quality of life in the field. The World Health Organization defines quality of life as the individual's perception of his or her position in life in the context of the culture and value system in which he or she lives and in relation to his, her goals, expectations, standards, and concerns. This definition reflects the multidimensional nature of quality of life. As the subject evaluation is embedded in the individual's physical health, psychological state, level of independence, social relationships, personal beliefs, and relationships to salient features of the environment. The European Study of Epidemiology of Mental Disorders reported that mental disorders were associated with substantial levels of disability and loss of quality of life. Some quality of life assessments reflect a new evaluation of functional and social outcomes associated with recovery from mental illness. The assessments of quality of life in the psychiatric field are emerging as important, both in consideration of different diagnoses and in the consideration of the impact of treatment intervention, and also in the evaluation of the medical disability. Several studies of Vietnam veterans examining the impact of PTSD on quality of life by a wide range of quality of life measures show that PTSD has a negative influence on quality of life in both females and males. And the influence of the quality of life is not only found among veterans with the diagnosis of PTSD, but also among family members. In this study, It was basically part of a larger study of consequences of non-domestic violence, combining in the semi-structured interviews and questionnaires. The study had a single group of 70 people and a longitudinal design, design with three repeated measures over a period of 12 months. So most respondents, 97%, answered the first questionnaire during the period that ranged from a few days to 16 weeks after they had had an assault. The second assessment was conducted three months later, and the third assessment was 12 months later than the first assessment. The criteria for inclusion were people aged 18 or older seeking assistance from an emergency unit or making a police report of an actual physical assault in the communities of Bergen and Oslo in Norway. For an inclusion, the person had to be assaulted by a person other than a family member or a present or former intimate partner. With the assistance of local police and medical services, participants were identified and recruited. 214 people were asked to participate, but in the end, only 70 actually continued. So the quality of life breath is a self report scale that consists of 26 items. It is multilingual, multicultural, generic quality of life scale developed across a 15 field center. The WHO quality of life breath includes four domains related to quality of life. So physical health, psychological health social relationships, and environment. In addition to this, two items are examined separately, namely the perception of overall quality of life and perception of overall health. This questionnaire has been demonstrated to have satisfactory discriminant validity, internal consistency, and test retest reliability. So the items are rated on a five-point Likert scale, reflecting intensity, capacity, frequency, or evaluation. And the items inquire how much, how completely, how often, how good, or how satisfied. Post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. The Impact Event Scale 15, or the IES 15, has been demonstrated to be a useful self-report measure of stress reactions after experience of a traumatic event, and to be valuable for detecting individuals who need treatment. Perception of life threat. The victim's perception of threat to life and their fear of increased severe physical injury were categorized as felt life at risk, fear of increased severe physical injury, understood danger afterwards, and did not perceive the situation as dangerous and did not remember. Classification of physical injury. Participants were recruited from two main crime categories used by the police in the registration of violence, assault, and if inflicted bodily harm. Each case was classified at the first interview in cooperation with the police based on a judgment made using a combination of the level of physical injury and severity of intention of the perpetrator to cause harm, where physical injury is the most important criterion. The assault category compromises injuries ranging from a black eye to those that are quite serious, in addition to often include serious threats and more severe injury. The victims of inflicted bodily harm compromise people with the more serious physical injuries ranging from near fatal injuries to different kinds of fractures or other comprehensive bodily injuries. previous experience of being a victim. The participants had to answer just at this simple question of whether they did have any previous experience of being a victim and were categorized by a yes or no answer. Demographics. Demographic information such as age, gender, education level, cohabitation, marital status and employment status were recorded. All of this data was analyzed by frequency tabulations, cross tabulations, independent sample t-tests, Pearson's R, and analysis of variance. Results of the analyses were summarized by fitting structural equation modeling or SEM to the data of persons who participated at all three assessments. The construction of the aims and the analysis, including the variables such as prior violence, threat level, and physical injury, is based on earlier findings. For instance, prior semi analysis examining predictors of PTSD in a cross sectional perspective. So the results showed lower mean values of four domains physical health psychological health, social relationships, and environment and the two items overall quality of life and overall health of the WHO quality of life breath in those suffering from probable PTSD compared to those diagnosed as no cases at the times of all assessments. The negative impact of post-traumatic stress disorder on quality of life is evident in the results. In accordance with earlier findings based on a wider range of quality of life measurements in both veteran and civil, civilian populations. Respondents in this study categorized as probable cases or risk cases also had a lower quality of life in all four domains and the two single items. than participants in a study of in the Norwegian general population, The results also showed that respondents categorized as no cases had similar or even better quality of life than participants in the study. The result of this study is in accordance with other research findings, for instance, Warshaw et al in 1993, which found worse quality of life functioning amongst patients diagnosed with PTSD than among patients without the experience of potentially traumatic events. One study examined in this research, examined the presence of PTSD and quality of life as an outcome measures in a small sample of clients in the community mental health setting, using the same WHO quality of life breath scale and reported a significant reduction in quality of life in all domains. So the results in this study were in accordance with most of the psychiatric studies investigating the relationship between subjective quality of life and psychopathology in terms of psychiatric symptoms. The areas of depression and anxiety have been especially pointed out regarding this relationship and in that point of view, the results that this study produced were expected. PTSD is categorized as an anxiety disorder with a high comorbidity with anxiety and depression. Primly evidence suggests that post-traumatic stress disorder and panic disorder may have a stronger influence on perceived quality of life than other anxiety disorders. And a longitudinal study investigating the relationship between PTSD and health-related quality of life in injured trauma victims over a period of 12 months found that PTSD to be a predictor of reduced quality of life. So I found this study to be brilliant. I understand it's only over 12 months, but at least it gives you that snapshot of the 12 months. And I thought it was good how they focused on subjects who, it wasn't a domestic violence. It was someone outside the home and not um, a significant partner. Because I think we do need to distinguish between the two of them. Again, I think it's a very small sample of people. But I understand victims not wanting to be part of a study. And this is something that they did actually mention. So only 49% of their respondents completed all the assessments over 12 months. It's unfortunate, but a common finding in longitudinal studies of injured or assault victims. Other studies show high levels of dropouts with rates between 40 and 53%, so this was quite normal. So, attruition introduces questions about who is dropping out, whether the most or least symptomatic participants are not responding to all of the assessments. And such a bias would be a potentially serious methodological problem. However, I still think it does show a really good significance in that people do perceive that their quality of life is reduced by their post-traumatic stress disorder. Another limitation of that study is that only 17%, so 12 of the sample were females. And actually, I think even though that is a limitation, I do also see this as a slight positive as well. Because when I was reading this study, for some reason in my head, I just thought it would be a mostly female population and a mostly female sample, but actually it was more male. In conclusion of this study, individuals diagnosed with full or partial symptoms of the post-traumatic stress disorder do have a poor quality of life compared with non-diagnosed or normal populations. These quality of life results demonstrate chronic, highly negative influences on the individual's perceived reality of their own situation. Early identification of probable PTSD and the impact of quality of life are very important because those who remain ill one year after the event rarely recover completely. The present findings have a clear practical implication. Firstly, clinical implications must be to prioritize interventions, preventing development of post-traumatic stress disorder, and secondly, to follow up on those with post-traumatic stress disorder. In addition, in order to evaluate medical disability for financial compensation of victims of non-domestic violence, an assessment of quality of life may be very useful post traumatic stress disorder has a high impact on quality of life in a non-domestic victims of violence, as measured by the WHO quality of life breath in all domains. The presence of the PTSD in both the acute and later stages is a predictor of poor quality of life, and such knowledge might provide guidance about how to effectively implement preventative and early intervention strategies in this group of victims. The individual's perception of his or her own life, in addition to the symptoms and the illness, may increase both the patient's and therapist's priority and effort in regards to treatment. The diagnosis and the symptoms may not be the most central concern of the patient and use of the quality of life assessment puts the individual at the center of the inquiry. A more comprehensive approach by focusing on perceived quality of life as well as symptom reduction as therapeutic strategies on PTSD patients should be a huge consideration advancing in treatment outcomes. So I just want to give my last thoughts on this study because I think overall, that's what we need to see is how people's quality of life. So where I mentioned the memory and learning above that comes into your quality of life because it affects how you can go on with your life. So I think this study really hits the nail on the head. And I think that's why I feel so passionate about post-traumatic stress disorder because it affects absolutely everyone. It doesn't mean that it's just people who are in armed forces It's just people who get this. It can affect anybody. If anybody goes through a traumatic event. And I think by this and the other studies have shown, if you have an early intervention, if you have the support systems around you, because you need to not be able to feel that. Because as soon as you hit that 12-month mark, it seems that it is more probable that you're going to have it for the rest of your life. And then that will affect your quality of life. So I think that's where we need to be there at the start to be able to support people who are going through this and to be able for them to see and seek the help that they need. Because in the end, it's their quality of life that's going to be affected. And that's what we need to put the focus on is helping that person improve the rest of their life so my sources for this week are the studies that i have discussed i will just list them out for you as well and i'll also leave the links in the show notes below so if you want to read any of them in a little bit more detail then they are there for you i just wanted to give a great overview of them so the last study that i did um discuss was jonathan et al which was in 2007 which was in the health and quality of life outcomes volume five, article number 26, and it was called the predictive value of post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms for quality of life. A longitudinal study of physically injured victims of non-domestic violence. The study before that was, um, Jenkins et al in 1998. And that one is learning and memory in rape victims with post-traumatic stress disorder. The one before that was Ofslav rubber which was published in 1992, and that was the prospective examination of post-traumatic stress disorder in rape victims. And then I also had McFarlane and Papaya in 1992, which was the multiple diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder in victims of a natural disaster in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease, 180 Pages four hundred ninety eight to five hundred and four, and then finally, I also had, oh, Madraskarin and O'Brien in nineteen eighty seven, which was also in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease, and their paper was acute post traumatic stress disorder in victims of a natural disaster. As I said, I'll post all the links up on there. I hope that this has been a really enlightening series for everybody. I know today's episode has been a bit long, but that last story was just really good and I really wanted to put that out there. I always feel when doing these series is that I should always end on the victims because in the end, they're the ones whose lives are impacted. And I always feel I do listen to true crime. I am very interested in true crime as I did my forensics and psychology. Um, a degree and master's and I do have that interest in there, but I feel like we do lose the name of the victims. And that's something that sometimes feels a little bit icky to me, but... That's why I do like to end my series is on the victims. As I mentioned earlier, June is post-traumatic stress disorder focus month. So please, if anything, if you want to read any more of those studies, there's so many papers around, there's so many articles, there's so many ways that you can find information to try and help a loved one out or even just help yourself if you feel that you have gone through a traumatic event. There are definitely self-help pages around there in groups which you can reach out to. they absolutely brilliant. Next week, I'm going to finish off the Greek myths that I started before this series. I just need a little bit of something light since this series has been quite a heavy one. And as I mentioned before, June is going to be quite. A heavy study month from myself, so I am just going to cover a few true crime cases in between this time before I move on to another series like this. Um, I'm throwing up in I don't know which way to go in my next series. I don't know whether to focus on um, bipolar disorder or to actually focus on um, schizophrenia. I will cover them both eventually, but I don't know which one I'm going to cover next. Um, If you want to give me an idea of which one you would prefer, I'd absolutely love it. So thank you for listening to another episode of Macabre from Mortals. If you want to give me an email or give me a case that you'd love to hear from me then please drop me an email at macabreformortals at gmail.com alternatively hit me up on a dm on instagram and instagram handle is at macabre for mortals i hope you all have an absolutely fantastic week thank you for listening and giving your time for listening i really appreciate every single one of you who are listening It's so encouraging to see. Um, I obviously can't see people, but I see the same numbers that come up every week and it gives me such pleasure to know that I have regular listeners who are listening on a regular basis who are interested in the information that I do give. So thank you so much. I hope you all manage to keep safe wherever in the world that you are and I'll speak to you next week. Bye.